This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. For two years in the early 1980s, Monica Connell lived with a family in Talpi, a high-altitude village in western Nepal that was so remote that it was a 10 days walk from the nearest road. From rooftop rituals to wild boar hunts, Connell, a social anthropology student, documented village life. She published her experiences in her book, Against a Peacock Sky, which was recently republished by Eland in 2014. So now, here is Monica Connell. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So you spent a couple of years in a remote Nepalese village called Talpi, if I'm saying that correctly. You are, yes. Which you wrote about in your book, Against a Peacock Sky. And there's a lot of good things to talk about here. Um, but before we do that, can can you give us a sense of of geography? Where is Talpi exactly, and how remote is this village? Yes, it's in the northwestern Himalayas. It was at a height height of about um, nine thousand feet, slightly over, and it was very remote. In fact, it was um, nine ten sorry ten days walk from the nearest road. And it was possible, there was a small um, airstrip there. So there were flights that went in and out, but only um, during the spring and autumn. They stopped completely during the monsoon, which was from June until October. And then in winter, when there was likely to be snow and ice, they were pretty sporadic. So, yes, we were remote, very remote. But that's what I wanted. I wanted to be um, with a traditional culture that hadn't been um, tainted by, well, hadn't really been tainted by modern and Western culture. Mm -hmm. So that was the price I paid. And uh, when we say small village, about how many people live there? How, how I'd say small? they were about 200. Wow, so quite, quite small, off the grid, no electricity. No electricity, no running water, nothing really. The village was almost entirely self-sufficient with no news of the outside world. Um, everything that the people had, they either grew or made or bartered for. They used to go on bartering trips, taking the sheep as pack animals, um, 10 days walk to the south um, to get um, more crops and to get cotton um, for making clothes and um, metalware. Um, cooking pots and pans. And then they took the sheep up to the Tibetan border or close to it to get salt from there. And so they had this trading system going to bring to bring a few things into the village, but otherwise everything was um, pretty much homegrown. Mm -hmm. how, how did you hear about this village, if it's so remote? Well, I had several requirements um, when I knew I was going to be doing fieldwork in Nepal. The first one was that it was to be a Nepali-speaking village um, and Hindu, a Hindu religion, as opposed to there are a lot of um, 
people who come from Tibetan backgrounds in um, northern Nepal. And um, so I didn't want that. And then, as I said, I wanted um, somewhere that was remote, so it was fairly traditional. You know, it hadn't been influenced by um, the West. And the other thing was that um, I didn't want to be in a place that had already been overrun by anthropologists. So I wanted my work to be kind of um, important. Mm -hmm. So you you mentioned uh, doing field work and anthropology, and I believe the intro of your book references social anthropology. Um, and so for, for people that are unfamiliar with, you know, this field of, of work, um, can you just give us a sense of what, um, I guess, social anthropology is and maybe what exactly uh, you were you were studying? Yes. Um, social anthropology, I think, is, I'm not sure if this is right, but um, I is it correct that in the States it's known as cultural anthropology? It's anthropology just about a society and a group of people. And they used to be kind of um, traditional or what might have once been called primitive societies, but now, of course, that's expanded. Mm -hmm. um, so it's about, about everything that goes on within that society, how the society forms, um, how the people are brought together, things like religion, laws, education, all that kind of thing. Um, anyway, there wasn't much education where I was, but it's just how a place functions, how a group of people function as a whole. Mm -hmm. and, and so this was for your PhD thesis or your dissertation, and you knew that you wanted to write about the Nepalese Hindu kind of remote civilization or society, and you just decided to figure out when you were on the ground what it is you would write about exactly? Or did you have, I yeah, guess what yes, I'm asking you. it was pretty much like that. I mean, the, the recommended method of anthropological fieldwork is called participant observation, which is exactly what it sounds like. You go there and you learn the language and you live there for one to two years and you live as the, the people do that you're studying um, trying to do everything with them, work in the fields with them. Um, I think it came about, well, it came about in the 20s, that method of research. Um, and before that, anthropologists used to go and hang out on kind of shady verandas and send um, send translators and, and um, people into the village to question people. But it turns out that, of course, if you go into... Um, a place with an agenda, with something you want to prove or with preconceptions, sure enough, you're going to get those um, confirmed. So uh, because if you if you have something in mind that you're working towards, some kind of theory that you want to prove, um, the thing is that your questions will be shaped by that, the way you ask the questions, and people will answer according to what they think you want to hear or what mm. they don't want you to hear. So the idea is that you watch, you just live in the place and do everything as people do, dress as they do if you want to, mm. and um, hang out with them, basically. Um, but this participant observation, it, it, it is also the downfall of a lot of anthropologists, um, because once you've spent a year or so, so kind of wading through muddy paddy fields or 
going boar hunting, you start to wonder <laughs> if, you know, how this is supposed to be connected to anthropology as you know it. But I think that's something all anthropologists feel to an extent. So it's just something you go through. And then when you're writing it up, if some kind of theory emerges, that's fine. If you don't see a pattern in what you're studying or something that you can um, link all the information you you gained to, then whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in in the introduction, I guess now that you mentioned this, I do remember you saying that you didn't want to have an agenda when you went there, and you and you and a a friend or a partner went there, a photographer, no? Yes, I was there with my partner Peter. Um, he was a photographer. Yeah, he spent the whole two years okay. with me there. And I, I recall you also mentioning something. I believe it was in the introduction where. After a year, you were reflecting on your notes and you had realized that you had experiences, you had stories, you said something like impressions, but you didn't have any facts. And I think that's when you went to go speak with the teachers in in the yes. village. And so how does that, you know, this, this tension between participant observation, stories, experiencing, and then you know, the need to have some something concrete, for lack of a better term, like something factual? How, do, how, does, how did that tension play out for you in the village at that time when you were doing your, your work? Yeah, that's a very interesting point, that. Um, what I did is I contacted the local teachers. There wasn't a school in my village, but there was one um, a few villages away. So I asked the teachers, I suggested I pay them a bit of money, and they could come. We could all gather after after school, after they'd finished at school, and I could just um, talk to them about various subjects. It was mainly, I wouldn't have wanted to rely on that process to learn about the village, but it was useful to corroborate what I'd seen and, um, mm. and experienced myself. Um, and, and also just talking to educated people, I mean, the people in the village, they weren't very good at talking about abstract things. They, they were great. The family I lived with was great at explaining to me how to husk rice or how to do this or how to do that. But when I tried to take things out of the context in which they were happening or had just happened, they weren't very good at that. They couldn't distance themselves um, from their own culture to, an extent, to the extent that was needed to kind of talk about it. And the teachers were great, great at that. Um, but unfortunately, school didn't happen very often. And sometimes I'd go to that village um, a couple of miles away and I'd be told that, um, you know, the teachers were all needed in the fields working and they hadn't come today and there'd been no school today or they'd gone to um, Joomla Town to pick up their wages or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it didn't... Um, it didn't really last for long, but it was a great help. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, as you mentioned that, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the the teachers having this kind of specialized set of, uh, a specialized way of thinking about the world, I guess. And, you know, the villagers or the family with whom you stayed um, maybe didn't have that, but they had, you know, a, a, another set of very important kind of practical knowledge and skills that, you know, had they not had that, they couldn't live there. Absolutely. I mean, 
the, the skills those people had and their knowledge of the land and the seasons and the and the weather and the crops they were living as high up as um they were the highest subsistence farmers in nepal um when you get higher into the himalayas um people can't live as subsistence farmers they have to rely on trading and as a result they often become much richer uh, these people i was living with they were completely glued to the land mm. working really hard you know the skills they had were just incredible <laughs> all right can you can you paint us a picture of you know you know anybody that reads the book you'll 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 know about the family you'll see the the kids and, and the family and the characters there but uh, for the listeners uh can you tell us a little bit about the family um you know, what were their names what what was it like living with uh this nepalese family mm-hmm. um it was um a man called um kolchu and his wife chola and they had um seven children and with them there also lived uh their daughter-in-law who's married to their oldest son and the dog um, the the red yeah. bitch <laughs> and the dog of course yes um and the puppy at one stage mm-hmm. um and the the houses were big made of mud and stone and with kind of um the, the, there was wood um going along the um roof rafters i suppose and then on top of that mud willow bark and mud it was that basic but they were big substantial houses and there was a flat roof um they went up if you looked in profile they went up or a cross section they looked they went up like a series of um steps and outside the living quarters there was this flat roof where people would sit and where grain was dried and things and we had um there was one section belonging to this family i was telling you about and another section belonged to belonging to the man's brother and his family and we moved into a third section which was only a really small room it, it had been used just as ver, as a veranda really so it was very cold in winter but we all shared this flat roof where people just gathered in the daytime it was great basically because um peter and i had a, we were in our old own little household we did our own cooking and our own we chopped our own well we fetched our own firewood from the forest we ground our own grain um all that kind of thing we yeah we did our cooking we and we had a certain amount of privacy although not much because people just kept walking in and out um but we also were with the family a lot so we could just we could learn from them we often sat out on the roof with them or mm-hmm. um went to each other's houses they dropped in on us all the time and we dropped in on them so it it was the best of both worlds we had really so it sounds like you know you're very much a part of a family a larger family and also part of the community you weren't you know just tourist walking in there backpacking paying people money to do the things that you needed to do you actively engaged with the life and the work of of the village very much yes mm-hmm. i mean i didn't we didn't always work in the fields because it was just too much for us we did quite a lot of the time but yeah we just you know the little boy in the family would come in uh, he must have been about 3 
every night he wanted some of whatever we were cooking in exchange for some, what's, some of what they were cooking, you know, always ask us what we were having and things like that. Um, and people would drop in, bring us presents, you know, some some eggs or a little um, cup of milk when the cows started yielding, which wasn't all the time by any means. Um or some, you know, wild greens or some, I don't know, little presents like that. Or we'd take them things. Um, so, yes, but, but um, one problem was an extreme lack of privacy. Um, we were just, we didn't really have any privacy. We could shut the door, but, you know, people would just kind of walk in. <laughs> so so that was very hard to take. And also we were, we were really... Um, beholden to this family they taught us everything you know we couldn't have done anything without them and to, you know to the villagers we were like we were like babies really when we first <laughs> you know, we, we couldn't even speak the language you know we didn't it was the 10 year old daughter um Carly who I write about in the book um she showed me absolutely everything all the skills that every woman should know like when I was menstruating, I shouldn't fetch water or touch any man or cook. Uh, she taught me how to husk grain in the big pestle and mortar in the in the centre of the village. She taught me how to gather pine needles and um, bale them together to carry them home with, with just a single rope. I've no idea how she did that, but anyway, the two of us, us went on this expedition into the forest to gather pine needles for the... Um, bedding for the cows and she bound hers with just a rope going four times around it and carried this massive load one and a half times the size of her body she carried it all the way back to the village and put it in the pile there to be spread in the cow shed mm -hmm. and then this is a scene where you get lost in the mountains trying to uh, find a tool that you left behind and <laughs> and she comes to your That's rescue right. Mm -hmm. I know that's right. Yeah, she. Yes, I was. I was very, very close to her. She's a very dear child, very sweet and very engaging. So you mentioned, but I was close to that to all. You know, everyone in the family. Mm -hmm. They were incredibly kind and generous. I mean, we did. We did pay them. We made sure we paid them rent. I mean, it wasn't much to us, but there was really no money in the village, or very little money, and. Um, so, you know, we wanted to, we, we didn't want them to be out of pocket on our behalf. Well, certainly didn't want that. Mm -hmm. In fact, the other way. And in the end, we couldn't get all our firewood either. So um, we paid them a few rupees for each load that um, Kolchu or one of his sons brought for us. You'd mentioned feeling like uh, babies, kind of like helpless, not knowing what to do, how to get on. Um, and kind of like the burdens associated with that, you know, feeling like you're a burden on a family that already doesn't have uh, that much, yet they're so generous with their time and their knowledge and their food uh, to help you. But did you ever, uh, you and your partner ever feel that um, you were held in suspicion uh, by your hosts or by the villagers for being like an outsider or being up to no good? Yes, we did, and, and it was really distressing. It wasn't so much by our family. I think we had real bonds of affection and trust there. But by some of the villagers, 
they get this idea that we were going to um, send them away and um, or evacuate them to set up a um, national park or a game reserve for rich foreigners to come hunting. Mm. Um, and when those kind of rumours went around, it was really, really uncomfortable and hard to convince people that um, that we were, you know, that it was all all fine. Um, but I guess, you know, anyone going into your village and telling you they're going to write a book about you when they've never even seen foreigners before, it is a bit, it would be a bit alarming for anyone. And sometimes they'd stop me and just say, what's all this information really for? So, so you were very forthcoming with them about the fact that you wanted to study their culture. You, you came out yeah. and said, we're writing a book about this, or I'm interested in studying your, your, your society. Yes. I said something about, um, I, I mean, I don't think they'd understand or they don't think they knew about universities and PhDs and all that kind of thing. So I said that, um, you know, people in our country like learning about foreign countries so, you know, I would like to learn about your country and um, so I can write a book about it and tell the people at home. Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. Wonder what the process was like uh, for you and your partner to earn the trust of of the villagers. Um, it was because we felt so beholden to people. One thing they wanted from us was medicine. Mm. They wanted. They seemed to think that Western people are, you know, kind of um, natural born healers with. Um, limitless supplies of medicine and uh, because they seemed to think that was the only thing we could do for them we did try um but it put us in a terrible position it put us um often we'd get up in the morning and there'd be a queue of people waiting outside our room um to be treated and they'd come to us some of them would come to us with really terrible diseases and afflictions quite often there were things like um because everybody went barefoot, their, the soles of their feet had a thick kind of leather-like pad on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this would split and the split would go in really deep and it would bleed and become infected and all that kind of thing. And um, so I tried to, we had, we'd taken some medicine for ourselves antibiotics and bandages and we had a first aid first aid manual we had a few other things that were mainly just just for us um anyway we used up all that on various things and we washed cuts with iodine and we put bandages on them and then we got some more from the local town and um the worst example was um i became ritual sisters with this woman and um we were very close and one day she came to me with her baby wrapped up in a shawl and she took the shawl off the baby and um, its whole head was completely raw and um, it had been burnt. And um, she said, it's common practice for the older sisters 
to carry babies around in a shawl on their backs. And she said this baby had been with her older sister and um, she dropped her into the fire in the centre of the room. Mm. So the baby's head had got burned. And she's, because I was her ritual sister, she just trusted me implicitly to make the baby better. And I said, look, you know, we've got to take her to the hospital. I'll come with you. And she said, no, I can't take her to the hospital because I can't be spared from the work in the fields. And also the evil spirits would get into her head through the burn on her head and um, I'm not going to risk it. So what I did was I, I washed the cut, I bandaged it, I put some Vaseline on a piece of lint, I bandaged it, bandaged it. And then I went to see her a few days later and changed the bandage. Um, but the cut, had, the burn had got infected and then I thought, you know, what am I supposed to do now? But I decided, I looked it up in my manual and everything, and I decided that I had some uh, um, antibiotic capsules. So I, I, um, I opened them up and took, um, split up the powder inside and put it into little paper wrappers and told her to give one to the baby every four hours or something. I mean, honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Anyway, the baby got better, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like as a, a as an anthropologist, um, as someone who's studying societies and, and, and cultures, on the one hand, you know, there's that need to observe and to document and to and to notate and to, to see how things are and how things are done without interfering but on the other hand you know you can't separate the the humanity from yourself right and so um you know i'm just i'm just trying to envision you, you have several stories in this book about you know like a the tibetan guy beating a dog and it was really an uncomfortable scene for me to to read um and there's another scene about uh, i think cigarette is that his name Yes. Cigarette getting, uh, ha having a, an infection, but going to see a, a shaman instead of going to the hospital. And so the, on one hand, from the anthropological standpoint, it's interesting to observe and to document. But on the other hand, there's that kind of human element that I, I guess what I'm asking is how, how, how do you how do you balance those two impulses? Yes, it's a difficult one. And I have. I um, mainly went along with what the, the people in the village did. I felt I was their guest and it wasn't up to me to tell them what was right and what was wrong. Mm -hmm. But yes, that scene with the dog was absolutely terrible. I mean, I'd come to love that dog. It was a household dog. And, and, and you know, even the people who, even the family who owned it, loved it in a way. But one day this um, stranger, a Tibetan, came into the village and he started arguing with Kolshu and they'd been drinking and it got, got really nasty and they started fighting and then they stopped fighting. But the dog went for this Tibetan guy and um, bit his leg really badly. So he fell over and Kolshu tried to pull the dog off and things, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't listen. And then the Tibetan, um, demanded um, 500 uh, rupees compensation 
And Koshi said, no, I'm not giving you that. And, but other people joined in and said, yes, if someone's dog attacks you on their, on their property, it's their fault because they should control the dog. So Kolchu said to the Tibetan, I'm not giving you the money, but you can kill the dog. So the two of them took the dog downstairs uh, onto the ground, chained it up, and the Tibetan picked up these great boulders and just threw them at the dog. I, I couldn't bear to watch it. I, the dog had a puppy at the time, so I took the puppy inside, but I could hear the house kind of vibrating with these rocks hitting the ground. Um, so the Tibetan didn't actually kill the dog, but he left it there in a horrible state, and I took it down some water and things. Um, and then when I last looked, the next time I looked at it, it had gone away. But when I got up in the morning, there was the dog <laughs> kind of getting in the way of the cooking and, you know, looking around for food and just limping a bit, but absolutely fine. I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but um, dogs are dogs, I guess. Anyway, so that that story had quite a happy outcome, but it was it was awful. And, and when I've told people about it, they say, why didn't you stop it? I think, you know, there's no way I could have stopped it. And also, as you say, with the um, Sigarup, um, the first port of call if someone's ill is the, um, the medium who will call the God to him and he will speak for the God and the God will say what he thinks has caused the illness. Um, and that's the first port of call before they go off to the hospital. Um, the hospital is a full day's walk away, a hard day's walk away, and it's not very good. You need to either cook your own meals as a patient or you need some family member to go with you and cook meals for you. And some of the time it's not properly staffed and things, so that people just were resistant to it. And also their traditional method was... That's what they'd always gone by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I what I really like about your book, Monica, is that um, you know you as a character and um, your anthropology motive. You know they're present. You can't get around that, but they're not at the forefront of the book. Um, I, I guess what I mean is that you know this is a book about the stories of the people that you're living with. Right. And it's not about yeah. it's not about you like travel writing can be. Uh, and we talked about this in email very briefly. But, you know, travel writing can be, you know, egotistical at times. The first person nonfiction author character is driving the plot or the story. Um, but we don't you know, you're not the driver of, of, of the of the, the book. Right. It's, I think, non chronological stories of the people that you're living with. And they're just so kind of rich and fascinating and interesting that they can stand without you having to kind of inject yourself into, into their stories in a very direct way. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about this from a book or a narrative or writing a travel book standpoint. Yes. Um, when I came home, as you can imagine, I was after two and a half years in Nepal um, I was a very changed person. Um, 
And I thought long and hard about how to write up my everything I'd learned about the village, which was a huge amount. Um, I didn't feel right with the traditional anthropological thesis, um, which would have meant probably um, putting everything into a framework, cutting out most of the information that I'd gleaned, um, and turning the people who were my friends and you know family um, into such kind of objects of scientific inquiry. Mm. So I thought long and hard about how to write it up. And um, so I was kind of half writing anthropology, half writing a travel book, but neither really. And I did present it as a PhD thesis. And at first my supervisor said he liked it, you know, we could do it as, um, we could say it was literary style. Um, And then he got cold feet and said, well, I'm not sure what external examiners would have to say about it. So I gave up the idea of doing um, a PhD and I wrote the book as seemed appropriate to me. Um, And that was how it came out, really. There's no, there's nothing planned about it. It just emerged organically as with me in it, but in the background. I think that was partly my anthropological training because writing yourself into the account was a complete no-no in those days for anthropologists. Mm. I think it might have changed now because the whole idea of objectivity has changed. Right. And um, so it's more... Um, it's more honest in a way to write about how you found out about what was there rather than just saying this was there. Cause obviously you being there affected it, mm-hmm. affected um, what you saw and what you experienced and way, the way people lived. So it's better to say like, for example, yes, I was a woman and you know, I was there and it was hard for me and I felt this and that. So that, that's, that can be put into the scientific um, procedure in a way. But um, I suppose I was interested in John Burgess' Pig Earth, which had come out a few years before I went to Nepal. And what he's done is he's written, well, he calls it a novel. I'd call it a series of interlinking stories, I think. And he says that he wants to um, document um, peasant culture in Europe before it's totally eclipsed. So I thought, well, I could do it as short stories, but they're fact. Mine aren't short stories. They read like short stories, but they're not short stories. I thought I'll put myself in it. I'll put the people I lived with in it as characters. And I also wanted to get the whole of their culture in. If I'd done an anthropological thesis, I would have probably focused on one minute aspect of their culture and put it into a framework or some kind of theory and tried to prove that with what I'd found out. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write about everything, yet make it interesting. There's so many interesting things about that culture, like the, you know, the way the women had a little, their skirts were long tubes of really rough cotton and they printed them with a bamboo stamp that had been with some color with and colored kind of ink from different parts of the from plants and the rice fields where the soil was really dark and things. 
hundreds of things like that. I wanted to write about boar hunts. I wanted to write about the gods and religion and the spirit mediums and shamans. And um, But I wanted to make it interesting at the same time. So that's how I eventually arrived, arrived at my um, rather strange book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... You know, I, I think Eland uh, published this back or republished it back in nine. Uh, sorry, twenty fourteen, two thousand fourteen. That's right. And it was originally published in the early in ninety one. Yeah, ninety one mm-hmm. by Viking Penguin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are, twenty fourteen, being republished by Eland, a great publisher of you know classic travel travel books. So it 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 is being kind of lumped together in this category of tra- travel literature. But, you know, from that perspective, it's quite ref- refreshing to, to read um, because, you know, you treat yourself in the book so delicately and it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not like it, this egotistical, this is what I'm doing. This is my narrative. This is, it's all about me, you know, experience in the world. So it's, it's, it was really refreshing to read. And uh, I've spoken to some other uh, some friends who've who've read it and they've echoed the, the sentiment. Um, so I'm very very happy to have, have, have read this book. Thank you. Uh, we're getting a little bit close to time here, and I was wondering if you could um, read a passage from the book for us and maybe introduce it. Yes, um, I'm going to read a piece from the final chapter in the book, which is divided into five parts each one about a different woman or girl in the village and my relationship with her. This one's about Chola, who we've already discussed, was um, part of the couple who shared their home with us. I didn't work on the potato harvest every day. Most of the time I stayed at home, reading and writing. On one such day, Chola came back from the fields early so she could press some oil to fry the puris for Sigurup's departure to Aula in a few days. She fetched the paste that she'd made from roasted hemp seeds and the little wooden gully on which she pressed it and knelt down, ready to begin. When I went out to join her, she said, Sister, everything's so easy for you. You have oil and ghee, you have spices of every kind, You eat meat and eggs and honey and rice as often as you like. You have medicine, contraception, nice clothes, soap to wash with. You don't have to work in the fields all day. You can just sit at home reading and writing. She'd said all this to me before, several times, and now I acknowledge the truth and half-truth of it once again. She leant down with all her weight, forcing her knuckles into the paste, then folding it over and forcing her knuckles in again so the skin showed white across her fists. I watched as the oil seeped out and trickled down the wooden gully, falling drop by drop into the small bowl at the bottom and spreading slowly out across its surface. The next time I went to Jumla Bazaar, I bought some meat and invited the whole family, Kolshu, Chola, their seven children, and Mina, their daughter-in-law, to eat with me. It took me most of the day to prepare the food, battling with the heat of the fire and the smoke, borrowing plates and bowls and large cooking pots and pans, 
from Chola. Apart from the meat, there was yellow lentil dal, spicy potatoes, rice, fresh green chilies, and a couple of bottles of Roxy. When it was ready, Chola came in first, pushing open the door very gingerly, turning and whispering, making sure the others were coming close behind, and then almost tiptoeing inside. Although she came to see me often, today she, she acted like a guilty child, living out some long-dreamt-up forbidden fantasy. Slowly, savouring the moments, she sat down by the fire. Her eyes were shining with anticipation and her own particular sense of fun and mischief as she gazed around, taking in all my possessions as though she was seeing them, seeing them for the first time, commenting on the books, the torch, the camera, the plastic containers that she'd always coveted, saying how bright and clean everything looked in the steady light of the paraffin lamp. I poured out the bowls of Roxy, one for Kolchu, one for Shankar, Sigarup, Mina, Chola, myself. Mina refused hers when I passed it to her, shuffling it back across the floor and looking embarrassed, as though she wished I hadn't offered. Chola exchanged, exchanged glances with Kolchu, implying that I'd made some kind of social blunder, offering alcohol to women when men were there. She too refused hers. Then suddenly, her eyes alight, she changed her mind, deciding that she would indulge herself. She'd share it with the children. I heaped up the plates and passed them round, waiting till everyone else had finished before eating my own meal, watching their progress, ladling out more rice, more dal, more meat, as each plate was emptied and emptied again. I was glad that for once it was not Chola who ate the remains in the pans when everyone else had finished. Glad to see her passing her plate for more, tearing the last shred of meat from one bone after another, smacking her lips as she bit into a green chilli and the fresh juice seared through her mouth, tingling and burning. As each person finished, they went outside to wash their hands and Kolchu told Mina to clear up the plates and dishes and take them outside to wash. The more I objected, the more insistent he became. In the end, I followed her out and told her not to bother. She was a guest tonight. But she said she preferred being outside to sitting in there with her parents-in-law. She could smoke out here, and afterwards it would be a good excuse to slip away to someone else's house. I refilled the bowls of Roxy, laughing as Lullabahador let go of Chola's breast and seized her bowl instead. Sister, said Chola, ignoring him, is it really true that in your country it's early morning now? That when it's night time here, it's daytime in America? That's right, I said. I'd given up trying to explain that I wasn't American and that while America was approximately 10 hours behind Nepal, England was somewhere in between. How can that be possible, she pondered, smiling through her confusion at the total absurdity of it. My Nepali didn't rise to an explanation of that, so Kolsha took over. 
With great animation, he began talking and gesticulating, describing a circle above his head with his arms, then drawing on the mud floor with a piece of wood, mentioning the sun, the moon, the earth, the sky and the stars. I couldn't understand what he was saying, nor I think could Chola, because after a minute or two she changed the subject, drowning him out. And sister, she said, looking thoughtful, is it really true that each one of your cows yields 30 manners of milk every day and that your fish grow as long as your arm? Some do, I said. Some grow even bigger. There are big fish and there are little fish. Some are only half the size of yours. I tried to explain the difference between marine fish and river fish, between the ocean and a river. Wah, 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 she said, shaking her head, impressed but skeptical. So thank you for reading that passage. Uh, can you let us know where we can find you online? Uh, yes, um, Monica at monicaconnell.co.uk. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to talk about this book. Thanks for inviting me. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.